here and pray that the Lord will bless you and encourage you this morning as we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are joining us via live stream, we're glad to have you with us as well. Uh, one quick thing I, I want to mention to you before we begin our time, and that is that uh, I had mentioned it in a few newsletters ago about our uh, looking to, uh, to sort of downsize our need for people on Sunday mornings to help with between children's church and, and nursery because uh, we still needed two more people and thought about uh, sort of bringing that, the nursery closer to the large room where children's church happens so that we can just use three people on Sunday mornings instead of four. That's sort of the, sort of the tentative plan right now, but we have had uh, a person at least a couple weeks ago uh, volunteer to help out on Sunday mornings in that way. So this is sort of a, a last uh, push, I guess, before we actually make the changes that we're ready to make. Uh, so if anybody isn't serving in, uh, in, in, in children's church right now, uh, but is, is willing to, or in nursery as well, um, please let me know this week. Uh, you only need to meet two criteria, and that is that, uh, that you are, can pass a background check and also that you have been attending the church for at least six months. Uh, so if you are available and are willing to at least serve once a month, uh, on Sunday mornings, please let me know. Otherwise, uh, we'll sort of proceed as, as planned and just try to work with just three people on Sunday mornings just to relieve the pressure of finding additional people to serve on Sunday mornings. So, with all that being said, uh, let us draw near before the Lord and let us worship Him this morning. Uh, the Lord has, uh, has made the church to be sort of a, a, a heaven on earth where Christ Jesus is at the center, uh, where His people gather together, and they, they love the Lord together, and they love one another. They serve the Lord Jesus Christ by serving one another. Uh, they fellowship with Christ as they fellowship with one another. And so let us rejoice and take advantage of the opportunity that we have this morning uh, to draw from the well of Jesus Christ. And if you are here this morning and have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're glad that you're here as well. And we hope that you too might have a, a little bit of taste of what heaven is like as we gather together and worship the Lord Jesus Christ and praying that you too might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and be a citizen of his heavenly kingdom through faith. So let us go before the Lord and let us worship him. Amen. Amen. That's great. Great intro. Yes. Let's, let's stand and worship. Amen. Um, and additionally to that, I want to read something from God's word for a call to worship. It says, Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, who made, he who made heaven and earth. Amen. together.
hands inside rich wounds yet visible above in beauty
Behold the 
Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Amen. Lord, we await your coming. And in the meantime, we worship you. We come together, Father, as a, as a body, as a community, as a church, on Sunday mornings to, to worship you, Father, to hear of your word, to be edified, that our souls may be edified, Lord. Lead us today, Father, as we, as we hear your word. God, may your spirit work in us. May your word truly bring us to repentance if needed, Lord, and bring us before your feet. Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy of our praise. Just grateful, Father, grateful for the opportunity to be able to do this with, my, with, uh, with the saints, Lord, brothers and sisters in the Lord, Father, just thankful for this morning. Lead us, Lord, now into your word and in prayer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Church may be seated. At this time we'll be dismissing our children to their classrooms as well. Amen. We're going to pray this morning, but uh, something a little differently. We're going to pray for, uh, for Dan and Jane. Uh, this morning, so I'm going to ask them to, to come up. Uh, Dan and Jane, many of you know, uh, been with us for uh, for some time. Uh, Jane uh, longer, um, and they got married uh, late last summer, and they live now in Manchester, and so they're settling in, making new life out there, and looking for you know become a becoming a part of a new church out there. So as a way, to sort of a uh, to send them out. We're going to pray for them this morning. So. I just got to, to come up and, and so uh, let us uh, bow our heads and if you would uh, join me as we pray for them this morning. Lord, your church is the, the dearest place on earth because it is in the church that we see the gospel lived out as the saints gather, as they worship, as they aim to make much of Christ, as they confess sin to one another, as they extend the hand of forgiveness towards each other, as they love and serve. Lord, and it has been uh, a joy uh, for us to to know Dan and Jane. Lord, we're so thankful for them. We're so thankful that you have saved them through the blood of Christ. We're so thankful, Lord, that you have given us the opportunity and the privilege to, to know them. And as we think now, as they sort of transition out and start their, and continue to live their new life out in Manchester, Lord, we just think of the time that we 
we wish we would have had to get to know them more than we do right now. But we lift them up to you, to the God who, who knows them, who has every hair of their head numbered, and who loves them deeply. And we know and entrust to you, Lord, that they are always in your hands. And Father, we pray for them, and we pray that you would give them discernment and guidance, Lord, as they, as they evolve themselves and have become, they become a part of a new church out where they live. And Lord, we pray that as they gather with the saints, that they each week, Lord, would have this small taste of heaven, that they would develop deep bonds with other believers, that they would be encouraged each week through the preaching of your word, that they would be edified as they worship you with other saints. Lord, that you would give them those deep friendships that will hold them accountable, that will encourage them and sharpen them in their faith, and that they in turn can encourage and sharpen others. Lord, use them to be a blessing to others, to encourage others, to serve others, to love others. And Father, we, we pray for, for their marriage. Lord, continue to, to unify them. We pray, Father, that their marriage would vividly display the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that as they invite others into their home, as they do life with other believers, Lord, that others would be able to look at their lives and so clearly see the gospel of Christ. Father, we do pray and ask that you would cause their, their marriage to, to flourish, that you would use it to glorify yourself, to bear much fruit as well. Father, we pray that you would encourage them through your word, especially when times get tough, when there's uncertainty. Father, we pray that you would bless their efforts as they look for, for a home. Would you provide the right, the right house? Would you give them discernment? Would you give them guidance? And at that home, Lord, whenever it is you provide, whatever that home is and what it looks like, that that home would be a place where Christ Jesus is worshipped, where they can raise their children in the fear and instruction of the Lord, where the gospel will be preached to unbelievers, where believers can come in and fellowship and leave encouraged and edified in the Lord Jesus. And Father, we, we pray for these things. We eagerly ask for these things. And God, we look forward to all that you are going to do in and through them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. If you would, please turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 36 is our passage this morning. But to begin, I'll simply read from verse 22 to verse 24. 
We're continuing with Peter's sermon during Pentecost. And we'll conclude his sermon next week. So Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 22. So the, the words of Peter as he addresses the crowd in Jerusalem. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we do not pray to a Savior who remains in the tomb, but we pray to a Savior who has risen from the grave. We pray to a Savior who has been exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. Lord Jesus, as the one who graciously gives his spirit to those who believe, as the one who is the mediator of God's covenant blessings, we pray that you would rain down your blessings upon us this morning as we continue to worship and as we, as we sit under your word. Encourage your people, strengthen your people, sharpen our faith, and give us greater understanding of your word and how it applies to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, imagine with me, if you will, city of Jerusalem swelling with people as people are gathering together, people from all different parts of the world, or Jews rather from different parts of the world, coming together into Jerusalem bringing the first fruits of their wheat harvest to worship the Lord, to thank the Lord as a way to trust in the Lord for his continued provision. And people are gathering together, they're talking, catching up with one another, getting to know other Jews that they've never met before, and then suddenly there's this great commotion. And suddenly you see people turning their attention in a particular direction, and they begin to notice that there are these this smaller crowd of people are speaking in these different languages. You don't understand the languages, but other people seem to understand the languages. People begin to call out, well, this person is speaking in my language. This person is speaking the language where I'm from. And it keeps going on and on and on, and people begin to ask, ask one another, well, what are they saying? And those who can understand the language that's being spoken, they say, well, these individuals seem to be declaring the mighty works of God. And they're perplexed about these things, and then suddenly, one amongst this small crowd of people gets up to address the crowds, and that happens to be the Apostle Peter. And he begins with this, some words, and then some words also from the prophet Joel, talking about how this is, was prophesied in the Old Covenant. And then after 
at length quoting this passage from Joel, which many of the Jerusalem would have been familiar with. Peter then says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. And at the mention of that name, some eyebrows would have been raised. If people, for whatever reason, weren't paying attention before, at the mention of that name, they would have started paying attention. Because certainly people would have heard, or people there would have known who Jesus was. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Jesus was crucified. People who may not have been living in Jerusalem, but other parts of the world probably had heard about Jesus being a miracle worker. But certainly the people who were dwelling in Jerusalem knew the name. They recognized the name. Many of them would have seen the miracles of Jesus. Many of them would have talked with Jesus. Many of them perhaps even sat down with Jesus. Amongst that vast crowd, there certainly would have been people who were there at the trial of Jesus and even crying out for his crucifixion. No, don't release to us Jesus. Release to us the criminal Barnabas. Jesus, crucify him. Many amongst the crowds would have been there, who would have, would have been there, who had lined the streets as they watched and mocked Jesus walking through the streets of Jerusalem, bearing his cross. Many of them would have seen Jesus Christ crucified to that cross. And here is Peter talking about these last days that Joel is, is prophesying about in his book. So then talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And throughout the course of his sermon, he begins to make these connections between the prophecy in Joel and what this has to do with Jesus. In the beginning of verse 22, we begin to see some things that Peter wants the crowds to know about Jesus. So we begin with, firstly, God's work through and in Christ. So from the prophecy of Joel, again, we talked about this last week, but in some we see that we should not be focused on sort of the, the signs of these last days that are written in the prophecy of Joel, but rather the point is that Christ is giving his spirit unto the world, to all those who believe in him directing our attention specifically to the communication and access that one has with God and the knowledge of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So pointing to sort of the excellency, the greatness of the Messianic age, these last days under the reign of Jesus Christ, where people who believe in the gospel can have, can communicate with God, have access to God, have knowledge of God, which is something that only select individuals in the Old Covenant would have had access to. It was a week ago that I watched an episode of Formula One on Netflix. It was a particular episode where Tom Cruise was actually in like this, this special room with the team principal of the, the Mercedes team. Now, not just anybody has that kind of access, and there he is standing right next to the principal with a headset on, and he has this direct communication with the team principal. He understands and knows what's going on because he has the headset, and he, uh, he hears all these conversations, and he has access to all this information. Right? Not everybody 
is given that kind of privilege. But through the Spirit of God, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord is given direct access into the room of the throne of grace where they can talk with God, lift up their prayers, and they can know the Lord. For then from that, we then have Peter transitioning to the man who is Jesus Christ. And there's several things that he wants us, he wants the crowds to know about Jesus. He begins by saying that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. This attesting of Jesus by God tells us at least three things about Jesus that Peter wants the crowds to know, and that is first, that Jesus was sent by God. In John 5.36, Jesus says, The testimony that I have is greater than that of John the Baptist, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. That's what the works of Jesus are intended to do to tell the world that Jesus was sent by God. Secondly, that Jesus is the man approved by God. This is the idea that the man born blind who received his sight at the hands of Jesus comes to understand. He says in John 9.33, if this man, speaking of Jesus, were not from God, then he could do nothing. He understood that this man was approved by God. Thirdly, Jesus is the man who does the works of God. Matthew 12, 28, 28, Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus was doing the works of God. And as he's doing the works of God, it is declaring to the world that the kingdom of God has arrived. Again, Peter says, This is a man attested to you, testified to you. The mighty works, signs, and wonders that he was sent by God. He's doing the works of God. And he says, as you yourselves know, right, they know this. They know this because they had seen Jesus perform these miracles. They had heard of Jesus performing these miracles. Even Josephus, a church historian, or rather a Jewish historian, excuse me, and even Jewish tradition writes, they both write that Jesus was some sort of magician or miracle worker. Where there was no denying that Jesus had done incredible feats throughout his life. The other thing that Peter wants the crowds to know is that this Jesus, attested to the world by God, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That is, to the cross, to being crucified. That this Jesus went to the cross and that not only did God know this was going to happen beforehand, but also that God planned for it. Because it is in this way that we are saved, right? It is through the cross that we are forgiven of our sins. It is through the cross that Jesus pays the penalty that our sins deserve so that we might be spared of the judgment and the wrath of God. And this wasn't sort of Jesus going to the cross unwillingly, but he did so very willingly. He willingly left heaven and willingly came to earth and willingly went to the cross to die on the cross for our sins. 
But even as Peter is telling them these things, another fact cannot be denied, and that is that while Jesus certainly was delivered up to the cross according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, let us not miss this as he speaks to the crowds. You crucified him for the hands of lawless men. You put him there. And the fifth thing that Peter makes sure to tell the crowds is that Jesus did not stay dead, but Jesus was raised from the dead by God. And this wasn't another Lazarus event, right, where Lazarus was resurrected from the grave. Jesus is not another Lazarus, because Lazarus surely would have died again, but Jesus did not die again. In fact, Peter himself points to the fact that Jesus is not only fully man, but he's also fully God. For he says in verse 24 that God raised him up, losing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So no matter, no matter how hard death might have tried to keep Jesus, it could not. Because you cannot keep the divine dead. One commentator says that the abyss or death can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. But the dead has to give up the divine. Jesus cannot be held by death because Jesus himself is God. So then we have this transition from this prophecy of Joel and Peter directs our attention away from sort of this spectacular event of these people speaking in tongues to then point them to the man who is Jesus Christ. And he's telling us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is sort of this, this hinge, is this transition into the last days, into the messianic age. Whereas the, the door to this messianic age was once locked, and Jesus, through his life and death, was the key that unlocked the door, and that the resurrection is the hinge that swings the door open into the messianic age. Then Peter moves on to argue then for Christ's resurrection. He considers his life, his death, but now he focuses, focuses much more on his resurrection. And the way that he does this, the way that he's, what he's intending to do here is point to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And he's arguing it from Scripture. In my opinion, the way that he does this is actually quite masterful. So secondly, God's abiding, God's abiding presence with Christ. Verse 25 says, For David says concerning him, this is still Peter preaching his sermon, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is a wonderful psalm. This is actually taken from Psalm 16. And it talks about how one can have an unshakable confidence when they put their trust in the Lord. 
so that even when the ship of your life is tossed to and fro by distress, by persecution, by calamity, by temptations, by suffering, that for anyone who experiences turmoil, that as long as they continue to put their trust in the Lord, they can have the sense of peace and security because God is with him. Remember Jesus in the boat? You can smile in the storm when you're sailing home. Right, some of you know that from the story, but it is so true. But that's not even the main point. That's not the point that Peter is trying to draw out. This passage, Psalm 16, has as its greatest concern the life of the king. It's a passage that deals directly with the king. And for the Israelites, for the Jews, their greatest concern was for the well-being of the king. So that if the king prospered, then his citizens prospered. If the king was victorious in battle, then that means that they, the people, can celebrate the king's victory. When the king is becoming more more, more, uh, affluent, then it means then that the people also can do well also as the riches of the king are dispensed into the life of the people. But if you have a king who is terrible, and is not walking in the ways of the Lord, then people are not going to want that king to live for very long. Because the king is always considered, at least in the, for the Jews, the king was always considered to be sort of a, a mediator of God's covenant blessings. So if God was going to bless his people, he's going to do it through his agent, who is the king, who is considered in the Old Testament, and you see this in different places in the Psalms, such as Psalm 2, for example. The king is considered to be God's anointed, or a kind of God's son. So that when you have a king who isn't walking in the ways of the Lord, a king who isn't doing well himself, then that means that God would then dispense his covenant curses upon the king, which would then flow out to the rest of the people. So you wanted a king who worshipped the Lord. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20, we see an example of this where the king and his people prosper together and First King 4.20 says, Judah and Israel were as many as a stand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And that is the kind of vision that God had for the king and his people. You even have nations, the surrounding nations, coming and paying tribute to the king and serving the king, which then would have meant prosperity for the rest of the king's people. So certainly a point from the passage is that the security of the king is tethered to the abiding presence of the Lord. And for the Jews, they would, if you had asked them who was the greatest king that ever lived, they all would have agreed that it was King David. That's the kind of king that you would want. That's the kind of king that they needed. The tragedy of King David is that King David died. 
King David died. And even though he penned these words in Psalm 16, Peter is telling us, Peter is telling the crowds that David wasn't talking about himself. Right, Jewish scholar, when you get to verse 28, or rather verse 27, we will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Right, Jewish scholars have no idea what to do with that passage. In fact, I have this, this three-volume set of commentaries from this Jewish scholar, Robert Alter, which is an incredible commentary, and I use it frequently when I'm going through an Old Testament passage because there's insights there that I would never understand or know because I myself am not Jewish. But even when you get, or even in that commentary, when you get to, when you look at Psalm 16 and his comments on Psalm 16, when you get to verse 27, he just skips it entirely. Because <laughs> right? they don't know what to do with it. The only way to reconcile that, if you don't believe this is talking about Jesus Christ, then is to say, like, well, it's probably David talking about a premature death. But that can't be what it's talking about, because it's talking about somebody who's already died. And not letting your Holy One see the corruption that comes about from being dead. Even they understand it's just talking about somebody who has died. And Peter goes on to explain that David wasn't writing about this, about himself. He goes on in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. So Peter says here that David, two things about David, that he functioned as a sort of prophet, because he wrote these words in Psalm 16, and he was, how much he understood about what he was writing, right? It's hard to tell, probably not a whole lot, but he was writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, prophesying about one who was to come. And that David also knew the promise, a promise specifically given to him by God. And that is, namely, that he would have a son who would reign over his throne forever and ever. And Peter, is, in effect, is saying that Jesus is that king that God promised to David. In Luke one thirty-two, speaking about Jesus, it says that Jesus will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, that is God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And Jesus comes from the line of David. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise given to David. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, is where we see that promise. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jesus is the promised king, is what Peter is getting at. The promised king who comes from the line of David. The king who is now a mediator of God's covenant blessings so that if anyone is to receive any blessings, not for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, which is the fact that we saw in a couple of sermons ago, or even in last week's sermon, 
that anyone who's under the lordship of Jesus Christ receives his blessing because Jesus is God's king. And it's through this king that he makes his blessings available. And Peter goes on, continues with this sermon. What happens next to this risen Christ? This risen Christ that was crucified by the very crowds that Peter was addressing. He goes on to explain, thirdly, God's exaltation of Christ. Verse 33, Jesus being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter is only speaking of what he has seen for himself, along with the many others who were joined with him, who had also received the blessing of the Spirit of God. He had seen for himself the risen Christ. He had seen for himself the exaltation of Christ when Jesus was ascended from right in the very eyes into the heavens. They are witnesses to these things. And he's telling us here that the resurrection is the hinge that turns the world into the messianic age. And that it is the ascension of Jesus Christ through which that these blessings are dispensed or given to those under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So now we begin to see more clearly what the prophecy in Joel has to do with Jesus. And that is that these last days are ushered in by the ascension of Jesus Christ. The signs of the age is the pouring out of the Spirit on all those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is because of the ascension of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who is doing these things. Not the dead Jesus, not the Jesus who is still buried in the tomb, but it is the risen Jesus. It is the exalted Jesus. It is the Jesus that is reigning at the throne next to God. Ephesians 4, 7 speaks to the ascension of Christ and the raining down of the gifts that he gives to his people. Ephesians 4, 7 says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. The passage then continues and says, And then he gave to the church, or he gifted to the church, certain gifts. This passage here in Ephesians would have struck a familiar event for many of who have a, of a Roman descent, or even for those who have seen sort of a, a Roman triumph in their lifetime, where the general of the Roman armies would come through the, the streets of Rome, and he would have a, a crown upon his head. He would wear purple attire with gold embroidery upon that attire, which identified him as near divine. And he would ride on a four-horse chariot, and trailing behind him is his army, and then behind that, you would have a host of captives and also carrying the spoils of war. 
and this would have been considered a great celebration of the favor of the gods upon the general. And so what we see in Ephesians chapter 4 is this great procession of Jesus Christ where he leads his own procession after having conquered the grave, after having defeated Satan, that he also leads his own captives, but also he has carrying with them the spoils of his war, which he graciously and lavishly dispenses to all of his people. And the most important of those gifts is the giving of the Spirit, which would proceed from the Father and the Son, both together sending the Spirit into the world. Christ, as our gracious and benevolent King, has given us the gift of His Spirit. And through the Spirit, we receive particular gifts as a way of showcasing to the world that the kingdom of God has indeed infiltrated the kingdom of the world. That means that when Christ's people use Christ's gifts in the life of the church, it points to the exaltation of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God. It means then that when Christ's people use Christ's gifts in the life of the church to love one another and serve one another, it serves as a tangible reminder of the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross. So Peter is making the case, using Old Testament scripture, using what he has seen and heard for himself, that Jesus Christ is not just a miracle worker, but he is in fact the Son of God, who is now exalted to the right hand of God. And he makes the case very pointedly that though you crucified him, this is all according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Though you crucified him, God still raised him from the dead because God will not abandon his son to the grave. Though you crucified him, God meant it for good to make much of Christ and bring salvation to all those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter says it's not David who ascended from the grave and ascended to the right hand of God but it is Jesus. Jesus is the only one that fits what Psalm 16 is talking about. Jesus is the only one that David could have been talking about, not of himself, not just another man. But this is specifically and only about Jesus. So then by way of conclusion, Peter ends his sermon by stating then what is the significance of these things. Right, what does this then mean? If Jesus Christ is the risen Lord, if Jesus Christ has been made Lord, what does this then mean for you? Fourth and lastly, God's crowning of Christ. And this is what it means. Verse 36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus has been made the Christ who is the anointed of God. Jesus has been made the Lord. And this is speaking specifically about titles. Yes, Jesus has always been divine. That's, not, that, that's without question. 
John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, speaking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus himself equates himself, points to his equality with God when he says that he is the I am, which is what God also tells Moses in the burning bush. His divinity is without question. But what we see here is that Jesus now wears the crown of Lord, which then means, as we see earlier in verse 36, that, every, that all of his enemies will one day be made his footstool. Jesus before reigned, yes, as God, but he now, because of his resurrection and ascension, reigns as Lord over all things, reigns as the Christ, reigns as the anointed one. The same idea we see in Matthew 28, 18, when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Right? Not that he never had authority before, but now he's been given sort of a headship and particularly over the life of his church, where the church becomes his body and Christ then becomes the head of that body, the church. So Jesus has been made Lord of all things. And then that means, right, for those who have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is time to submit to the Lord now. Because Jesus has been made Lord of all things. And then that means that he, as he says in, this, in the Gospels, that he will execute judgment. He's been given the authority to execute judgment on all people according to their deeds, according to their works, but most importantly, according to whether or not they have believed in Jesus and submitted to his lordship. And for those of us who are believers, and have submitted ourselves, submitted our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, what does this mean for us? It means then that Lord Jesus has Lordship over all things, not just in the universe, but also to the minute details of our life. Romans 14, 7 says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live, or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose, or lived again, that he might be the Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Our lives belong to Jesus Christ. But you might still wrestle and ask, well, what, but, but I've already submitted my life to Jesus Christ. Right, and praise the Lord for that, that is well and good, but submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is a perpetual submission. Every day we're called to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. For as long as we battle against the flesh, for as long as the devil continues his scheming, for as long as the world seeks to entice you and lure you away from the lordship of Jesus Christ, we are called to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ each and every single day. Even perhaps moment by moment, we are to submit everything to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So even if something were to frustrate you or anger you, whatever the case might be, Submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ means that you are submitting your emotions to the Lord. So rather than responding in an ungodly way, you might instead respond in a godly way. Submitting to the Lordship of Christ is submitting our, our parenting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. For those of us with children in the home, it means that everything that we do, that we should strive 
to educate our children in the fear and instruction of the Lord, to help them to understand who Jesus Christ is as Lord, that they might also one day submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ also means submitting our very bodies to the Lordship of Jesus Christ so that we might be good stewards of our bodies. Now, I'm not telling you to go out there and get yourself a six-pack, but I think that there is certainly sort of this fascination with health today in our culture to the point, I think, of idolatry. So that's certainly not what I mean by submitting your body to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, but just stewarding your body well to the glory of God because your body, as the Scriptures say in 1 Corinthians, your body is not your own. It belongs to the Lord. The Lordship of Jesus Christ also means submitting your finances to him. So that belongs to the Lord as well. Submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, but it could also mean that you're not cutting quarters at work. The Lordship of Jesus Christ plays into how you manage your time as well. Right? Are you stewarding your time wisely? And I'm not saying you never turn on the television and watch an hour of television. I'm not saying that at all. But it does bring to question, are you managing your time well? For your time doesn't belong to you, doesn't belong to me, belongs to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Right? What more can you or should you be doing with your time? Now, and this is not intended in any way to sound oppressive, Right, that everything submit, we are submit everything to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That sounds overbearing. That sounds very hard. But let me direct you to a passage in Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here is Jesus, who certainly could have lorded over our very lives. But we see that he, that's not what he came to do, but he came into the world not to be served, but instead to serve even to the point of giving his life as a ransom for many. It is because of Jesus' humble submission to the divine plan of God that resulted in our salvation that should lead us to willingly and gladly submit our lives and everything in it to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Certainly there's an element of dutiful submission unto the Lord, but it's also not without a glad and joy-filled submission when we consider what Jesus Christ has given up on our behalf. We consider his precious life that he had given up on our behalf when we consider the great blessings that God, through Christ, graciously bestows upon his people. I just think, wow. I mean, my, if my life and submitting my life to you, to your lordship, is such a small price to pay in comparison to all that I receive through your gracious hand and through your cross. Peter, in his sermon, he's 
He's aiming for the affections, and he's trying to generate, I think, a sense of fear. Twice he tells his listeners, you crucified him. This man attested to you by God through these works, you crucified him. This man who was risen from the dead, that the scriptures declare that he is the son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the great king that we have all been waiting for, you crucified him. Certainly the lordship of Jesus Christ comes, should come with a sense of dread and fear. The lordship of Jesus Christ means that God, as I said, that the Lord will one day execute judgments upon all flesh, but the lordship of Jesus Christ can also transition to a place of comfort for those who have submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is a source of strength to draw from. How so? And this is what I would encourage you with as you, think, as you consider the Lordship of Jesus Christ. How can you draw strength from his Lordship? Well, if you are hard-pressed by the pummeling of temptations in your life, the Lordship of Jesus Christ means exactly what it says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, that God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. The, love, the Lordship of Jesus Christ means that when you are suffering, or that when suffering comes upon you like an intruder, that this is also an intruder that's under the sovereignty and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's under his control, and that he can also work it and will work it for your good in some way. When the devil comes with the battering ram of his schemes, the lordship of Jesus Christ reminds you that he is, that this devil is also a defeated foe. That the Lord Jesus has put the devil on a leash. That he can only go so far as the Lord allows him to. I am reminded of Later on in the book of Acts, of Paul when he's at on the ship, bound in, bound in shackles with other sailors. And his intent is to go and appeal before Caesar. You remember the story for those of you who have read it before. There's a great storm, and everybody in the, on the boat is on a panic, and they begin to toss things overboard because they want to lighten the ship. And then it says in that event that they came to a point where they had abandoned all hope. They've abandoned all hope. But then we see the Lordship of Jesus Christ come into play because the Lord tells Paul through an angel that not a single life will be lost in this storm. And when that same words, he encourages the sailors, nobody's going to die here because the Lord has said so. Because the Lord Jesus is the God of the storm. And the Lord Jesus is the one who has say on whether or not, or when a person is ready to depart from this world. It's a story that Elizabeth Elliot tells about time that she and her husband at the time went to the airport, Logan Airport actually, to travel somewhere and they were shocked and amazed that there was this great line of people standing outside 
everything had been grounded. No flights were coming in. No flights were leaving. Not only that, to make matters worse, is that your ticket meant nothing. You couldn't get a, a credit for, another, uh, for another, another flight. You couldn't get your money back. There was nothing. You had to start from scratch and try to find another flight to where you were going once the airport opened up again. And the scene was absolute chaos. I mean, there were people despondent. There were people in tears. There were people who were angry. There were fistfights. In a situation like that, how, how would you respond? What would your emotions be like in a situation like that? The Lordship of Jesus Christ is a well to draw strength from. Because even a moment like that, to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ means, Lord, I don't like this situation. This is frustrating. But I know this is an act. This is not something that you caught you by surprise, but you knew this was going to happen. Not only that, but you are in control of all things. Nothing escapes your notice, and somehow you're going to work this for your glory and for my good. Right, that's, that's what we can, that's how we can respond when we consider the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There's a source of strength. There's a source of encouragement to help us in times when we're flustered when we're frustrated, when things happen that we did not expect, helps us to remember the Lord Jesus is reigning and everything is under his control, including my life. Next week we will conclude Peter's sermon. And see how the people respond such a pointed message. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are king. And there is no other king that we would rather have than you. Through you, we receive the spirit of God. Through you, we receive gifts through you. We receive blessings that come from the throne of grace. You are a gracious king. You are a loving king. And you are a king who does not change. Our situations may change. Even our very lives may change for various different reasons. But we're thankful that we have a king who never changes, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, would you help us to continue, continually and gladly submit our lives to you each and every day. Help us to submit all things to you in comparison to all that you have given to us, the giving up of our lives is a small price to pay. And to think that there is more waiting for us in heaven 
things that we cannot even imagine, things that the Scriptures do not even tell us. It's all because you are risen, and you are exalted, and you are a gracious King. And as our King, Lord, help us to continue to draw strength from your Lordship. In your Lordship, help us to be comforted, to be strengthened, to be encouraged, to be given the endurance that we need as we continue to go throughout, go about our lives. We trust you for all of these things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand and worship one more time. Let's sing on to the Lord. Amen. O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. And O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, greatest treasure of my longing
exalt the name of Jesus. We exalt the name of Jesus this morning, Father. The name above all names. The promised King. The Holy One. Our Lord and Redeemer. The One who reigns and is at the right hand of God. Father, He has brought us salvation for those who believe. And it is why today, this morning, God, we thank You, Lord, for our Lord in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that, that we as a church and as individual, Lord, that, that we may humbly submit and continue submitting daily, Lord, unto our Lord Jesus Christ, God. Bring us to our knees, Father, and help us entrust our lives to you. Give us, Lord, a, a heart as yours. May we sit at your feet, Father. And, and daily, Lord, understand that you sustain us. And you lead us. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. May we submit under our Lord. Jesus Christ. Amen. Word of God says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor in eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. Church, God bless you. You're dismissed. Amen.